Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder. You know, we're going to be talking about the rocket ship that he's in. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, and all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Grant Cohen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So originally from the Bay Area, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life was great. Uh, I know it's uh, California gets dragged a lot these days, and some some of it rightfully so. But certainly when I grew up, uh, it was a good time to be in the Bay. Uh, as we'll talk about, I'm I now run a football league, and uh, it was a great time to be a football fan in the Bay Area when I was there. The Niners won five Super Bowls, I think, in my first 13 years of life, which was pretty awesome. Uh, Joe Montana, Jerry Rice were kings of the city, uh, and uh, and now I own a football league with Joe Montana. It's pretty crazy how life works out. Now, in your case, you know, growing up, you went to boarding school in England. So how would you say that boarding school shaped who you are? Because, I mean, obviously, it's the unknown, uncertainty, making new friends, all of that stuff. Yeah, um, I was kind of a pain in the butt. I always got good grades. I was always pretty smart, but I was a pain in the butt. And I think by the end of high school, my parents were just sort of like, you know, it's time. It's time for him to move on. Uh, and so they sent me to boarding school about as far away as they could send me from San Francisco, where at least I could still speak the language. Uh, so I went to boarding school just outside of London, and um, I do think it was it was interesting. I think I think it well. First of all, I met my I met my eventual wife and baby mama there, so I guess that that worked out pretty well. But uh, beyond that, I think I think it definitely was useful. You know, I have three kids of my own now, and, and it's interesting. Um, kids, I think they they mature at different levels in different times. Right, and some kids are a little younger and are are far ahead. I, some are the other way. I actually spoke to a kid earlier today. I called him a kid. He was 21 years old. He's a college student, and he is a delegate in West Virginia. I mean, he's actually like it's like their version of the House of Representatives. This kid's 21 years old. And he's been elected to the House in West Virginia. Like that's wild. Think about what myself was like at 21. That seems crazy. The idea that there's like different sort of maturity levels, and I think for me, I was probably at an age where it was time. I didn't need to be at home much more. And I think when I got to college, I think I got there probably much more well-prepared because I already lived on my own for a couple of years. Now, albeit it was inside of a boarding school, but like I was used to not having my mom make me lunch and, you know, there was clean my room and like, there was just shit you were like, had to kind of do on your own. And then also like the nightlife and going out thing, I, you know, I ended up going to college in Miami, which is quite a big party school um, and a, a good time. But I'd already lived on my own in a place where you could go to bars when you were a teenager. So it was kind of, it, was, it wasn't that crazy to me. I saw a lot of kids show up freshman year and by the end of the first semester, they were a mess. And for me, it was like, I don't know, like, I've already been doing this. Like, this is normal, you know? Now, in your case, media and advertisement, what, what caught your attention, you know, to explore really studying that? Yeah, it's interesting. So I went to college thinking that um, I'm a huge sports fan. I thought that I, I, I'm a huge sports fan, but I'm a half Jewish, half Norwegian, not very well coordinated, fairly slender, not very, I'm, I'm okay on the height, but I'm not that tall. Uh, and so I... Uh, I knew that professional sports wasn't a path for me, but I wanted to be involved in it. And so I, I went to college thinking that I would actually, I, my original major was broadcast journalism and thought that I would be a sports announcer. And actually an amazing professor my sophomore year of college, the like end of my freshman year, started of my sophomore year, Professor Walter McDowell. And he had 
he had come to Miami from Southern Illinois to create a new program, which was called Media Management, which was basically the business side of, of advertising. And uh, I had a class with him and I just thought he was awesome. And I thought that what they were doing was awesome. And I, I've always been kind of, I'll say more mathematically minded, if you will. Um, and so it really, uh, it really was interesting to me. And I also felt like I'd, I'd learned already in my first year there, like it turns out, unless you're like one of like the three or four people who make it big, there's most people in broadcast journalism, it's not a particularly great career um, uh, path. And so he convinced me to switch. And I'm, I was actually part of the, me and like a few other kids were the very first to ever graduate from University of Miami with a media management degree. We were the first class to ever do it. Uh, and I'm under the impression it's actually like a decent program there now, which is pretty cool. So what ended up uh, bringing you to LA? Process of elimination. Um, we, we, my wife and I had been, she, she started a college in BU. She ended up going, transferring to Miami. We graduated from Miami at the same time. And we weren't married yet, but my girlfriend at the time. And uh, we, uh, we just sort of, we'd been in Miami four years. We loved it, but it wasn't really a place to like be an adult. My, it's changed a lot, particularly the last few years. And we like, there's like startups and tech and businesses there. But back then that wasn't really a thing. Um, and so most people from Miami went to New York after school. We'd spent a, a summer there um, interning. I'd interned at Sports Illustrated and we'd spent a summer living up that way. And of course, senior year, it was fine. We liked it, but it wasn't. Well, it never really felt like the place that we wanted to live, sort of warm weather, beach kind of people. So it was really like, all right, we're not going to live in Miami, not going to live in New York. What's the next city? All right, let's go to LA. And uh, you know, if you'd told me that uh, back then that I was going to move to California and live in LA, and then I was going to work in tech, I probably would have said, oh, I live in LA for a few years, college after college, and then I'll you know move back up to the Bay Area. And we've had a bunch of opportunities over the years to move up to the Bay and a couple other places. And once you live in LA for a while, it's not the kind of city you fall in love at first sight with, but the longer you live here, the more it sort of sucks you in, the lifestyle, the weather, the, you know, yeah, you know, and now I got a wife and kids and a house and a cabin up the mountains and like, oh, now you're not going anywhere. Now you're stuck here. So, um, uh, but it's a pretty good life. There's worse places to be. So talking about the good life there of now moving to LA, you know, you got into the mobile apps and search apps. You started with an ad agency, then eventually you went into the operating roles uh, and that led you to launching your own company eventually, which was a chirp ad. So what led you to that decision of, hey, I want to start something on my own now? Um, I think I'd always been very entrepreneurial in spirit. I was, both my parents are entrepreneurs. My father has started uh, and sold and made money and lost money off of more businesses than I can count. Um, he was like, his, his, his story is amazing uh, of, of the things he's done. Uh, everything from me started with like a you know pretzel stand when he was in college in, at Cal on the streets of San Francisco, uh, all the way through to a wide myriad of crazy businesses. Um, and so I think I probably just always had that that gene in me and grew up around it. Even my mother started and owned her own retail stores for most of my life. Um, so I think it was probably just in me. And then, like I said, my first job, I worked in an agency. We had a client that was an early stage company that was in the was building a mobile app on Blackberries and Palm Pilots. That's how long ago this is, despite my youthful appearance. I actually am an old man. Uh, and, um, and I, and they recruited me. I went and worked there for the company, uh, and, uh, the brand and I was doing marketing, but then it kind of quickly turned into biz dev. And, um, we, we were at one point, like the number one app in the world, albeit back when it was green screen blackberries. And there was like thousands of users, not millions. So, um, but it got me into it really early on. Uh, and then like I said, I ended up being in the ad tech space and I was lucky. I worked, I was a very early stage employee at a couple of companies. I guess three companies that all had you know, decent exits in terms of acquisition or going public. Um, and so I think that was kind of you know my learning curve and my call it early to mid 20s. 
So an opportunity came where I had the ability to start my own business and thought, you know, I think I, I, think I know what I'm doing now. I think it's time. So uh, raised my first round uh, led by Science and Hearst Ventures, started the company Chirp Ads, had a really great growth tra trajectory the first year. Uh, and so a, a deal came through our kind of corp dev team to be able to acquire another mobile gaming company um, in a kind of combination equity debt round. And we did. And it was a hot mess, like lesson learned that like, it's great to have your company be acquired. Acquiring other companies, not not for me. Uh, we've done it a few times since then, but it typically is uh, the value is it's hard to justify. Um, and so we ended up uh, taking that combined entity, ran it for a year or so. At that point in time, I actually was, I still lived in LA, but I basically lived in San Francisco. I was I flew up every week, multiple days a week. I would spend up there. I'd fly home and I was just kind of burned out. And we ended up selling that business. And thankfully, it worked out timing-wise that like literally the day that we were selling that business, um, to a larger social gaming company was the day that my uh, eventual co-founders of Bank Controlled Sports and I all got connected. So uh, serendipitously, we'll it's time to move on. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. I just want to ask you here, like, what kind of visibility did that give you into the full cycle of a business? Oh, a lot. I mean, I think uh, when I started there, my background had been very much in like business development, sales, and marketing. I didn't, like, I I, I was smart enough that I always understood kind of how the product side of technology worked, but I never really embraced the understanding of like how important that was from a, like the strategic value of a business and what you were building was how good or bad your product set was. And, and in ad tech, it's a huge part of it. Um, so it gave me good exposure into that and then massively good exposure into like the overall P&L management, right? The hiring of people cross-functionally, not just sales and marketing people, but cross-functionally, how do you hire a good CTO even if you're not? An engineer, right? How do you find good people in that role? How do you have a great financial person, a VP of finance or CFO or whatever, to help you manage those things? How do you do forecasting and revenue planning and cost planning and budgeting? All those bits that, like, I'd been an early stage employee in other people's companies. So I knew they existed and I'd contributed to, but I'd never really had to lead before. And so I think that was really a great opportunity to kind of cut my teeth a little bit on the operations of, of you know, running a business, if you will. Now, in this case, you know, like when finally the transaction happened, you receive a um, request from LinkedIn. So what happened there? Yeah, well, so the, the original idea for fan-controlled sports had, uh, the very beginning of it had actually been many years earlier, and it was me and some buddies from, from Miami. We were actually, at, I was in New York visiting. We were at a bar, and we were watching a baseball game, and uh, we had this idea. I don't know, we had gotten to the conversation about, well, could fans do better than the coach? And we all thought that certainly, of course, we could. Um, and it was just one of those ideas I couldn't get out of my head. And so, for this is like 2007, 2008 time. Um, for a little while, we, we like set up a blog and a web page, and we we're kind of like, all right, we're going to try and do this. We're going to try and get like a bunch of fans behind us and some sponsors and raise some money and buy like a minor league baseball team. That was our idea, and um, we started working on it. And it was always like you know, kind of a side passion project hobby, uh, and we putzed around with it for a little while, and then eventually, um, we actually came close to buying a minor league baseball team uh, in Texas. The market went to crap in you know September of 2008. Came pretty clear, and we were going to buy a team that came with a bunch of land debt, and it was like you know this. The math did not make any sense at that point in time with the real estate market. So we all kind of pulled out of it, got busy, lives, wives, kids, the jobs I just mentioned, sort of in the ad tech space. Um, and it was kind of just on the back burner. I'd forgotten about it, and then lo and behold, I got a DM one day from some guy on LinkedIn who said, "Hey, I read this article about you from you know years ago about this idea you had." I own part of an arena football team. I'd never even been to an arena football game at that point in my life. And um, said, I think it sounds really cool. I'd love to meet up. I'd love to, I'd love to talk shop. 
he happened to be, we happened to live, he happened to also live in LA. We were kind of similar age demographic. We didn't know each other, but both had been in tech and like just, you know, kind of we're in similar circles. Um, and so we literally, I was actually getting a haircut at the time that I got the DM and I replied back. I just had my phone in my hand. So yeah, I'm happy to talk. Call me in a little bit. And literally called me as soon as I walked out of the uh, Floyd's on Melrose Barbershop. And uh, we immediately chatted and I said, I'm going downtown. I'm getting some business. Blah, blah, blah. I'll talk to you when I get back to San Francisco in a few days. And he's like, no, I want to meet you downtown right now. He drove straight downtown. We literally met at a salad place and it's a hot day. We had a bottle of water set outside and instantly I loved him. Thought the idea that they wanted to do on the football side was great. I'm actually a much bigger football fan than I am a baseball fan. So it resonated with me really quickly. And I said, look, I got this other business that I'm going to be out of pretty quickly here. Let's do it. Like I'm in, screw it. Let's go get a football team. Uh, and that was the, the impetus to, to jumping off. And, uh, it's been a, an awesome God, what, six years since then now, at least, uh, that we've, uh, we've been working together and so far so good. So what happened next after that, that conversation at the uh, salad bar? So after that conversation, we said, all right, we want to get that. They'd owned a team, uh, him and his, and wound up being our other co-founder. Uh, so Saurabh and Patrick owned part, they owned a minority share of an arena football league, an AFL team in Las Vegas. Um, and they own that team uh, with uh, a uh, a rock star, uh, some guys from Motley Crue, uh, who they'd put in some money into, and then those guys had spent basically all their money on drugs and hookers and all the things you can get into trouble with in Vegas. Uh, and um, and so their team was a mess, but they really liked the sport and they really liked owning the team, and they had a great relationship with the league. And the league knew it wasn't their fault that the team was a mess. So we ended up going back to the league and saying, "Hey." Next season, can we just forget about that team? Can we get a new team that we're going to make a fan control team? They said, yeah, it sounds pretty cool. I, at that time, the AFL is a league. It had been around for a while. It had had kind of a, a heyday in the early 2000s, but it was the cost structure of it wasn't working out very well. Teams were losing a lot of money. So a couple of teams in that left and went to a smaller arena league called the IFL that was more sustainable. The cost structure was smarter, better, more kind of operationally. It made more sense. Um, and so we ended up going to the IFL and saying, hey, we heard these teams are coming over. How about we bring our model there? And they said, great, we love it. So the plan had been to, to well, the plan was, and, and uh, I guess as we ended up kind of executing it in a backwards way, to start with a single team in the IFL, uh, it was the Indoor Football League, and to make it run by the fans. And assuming that went well, we were going to expand and try and become the full interactive football league. So uh, to do that, we had to raise a bit of capital, kind of friends and family around. Um, uh, Saurabh had, been a, had, had a, uh, mobile hardware startup that they'd have a decent exit on uh, a few years prior. So we had kind of a good network built in, particularly of local folks that we could call on to help, you know, between our own money and uh, some friends and family, we have enough seed capital to get the first team off the ground. We spent a ton of time trying to network ourselves through the um, uh, the football world because we weren't, we were all tech guys. We were not football guys and we needed to, you know, kind of build relationships in that space. Um, and at one point, we uh, we had a meeting with a guy um, named Tony Parrish who had played in the NFL, he played, actually played for the Niners, played for the Chicago Bears. He was like a you know, pro bowler for a little bit in the early 2000s. And we had lunch with him. We told him our idea. We said, look, this is going to be like Madden for real life. It's Fans are going to call the plays. And he's like, that's an awful idea. That is terrible. No player will ever want to play for you. No player is ever going to play in a league where the fans call the plays. But I got this buddy in Chicago that I played with in the Bears, and he's been telling me the same stupid idea for years. You should talk to him. So sure enough, connected us to our, ended up being our fourth co-founder, uh, who was a former Chicago Bear, had sort of the NFL experience understanding football chops. Um, and so the four of us all came together and 
we uh, bought the rights to a new team and then we let the fans start getting involved. So the first thing we did is we did a, uh, we let the fans vote on the league had given us a few cities that were options for them to play in. Uh, and it came down to like, we kind of went to each of the cities and looked at different stadium deals and it came down to Oklahoma city versus salt Lake. So the very first fan vote our fans ever did was where should we play? And they ended up voting on salt Lake city, uh, ended up being a much closer vote than we thought. Uh, but we, they ended up choosing salt Lake. Then we did a, an Indiegogo campaign, which I think was like the first time that like, I really felt like, oh man, this is a thing that this is going to work. Um, we did this Indiegogo campaign and we didn't have any fans at this point, right? Like we'd like done this poll on Twitter, where should we play? And we'd gotten like a couple of local blogs and I don't, they're probably, I don't, God, I wish I knew the number off the top of my head, but there was probably a thousand votes. Like it was not enough to be, a, this wasn't a business, right? This was like a fun social poll. Um, and we went, uh, we went and set up an Indiegogo campaign. And the idea behind the campaign was not to fund the whole team. Like we, it wasn't going to be that much money and we were going to cover that cost. It was, we want to raise $50,000 to build an app that will let the fans control our team. Like, hey, we already got a team, but if you fans can help us crowdfund $50,000, we'll do it. And this, was not, this, was, this wasn't an equity crowdfund. This was pre-equity day. This was just like Kickstarter style, right? Original Indiegogo. You get a t-shirt, you get some tickets, blah, blah. And it worked. We sold out. We think we did $98,000 in two weeks. So like double our money. And we're like, oh shit, fans bought all sorts. And we like, that like gave us the freedom to start, like, start having fun with it. Because now we got a little bit of a fan base. We got a couple thousand fans who've come in and actually put money in and actually care. And um, so we even did stuff like, there's somewhere out there, this still exists. No one's ever cashing in. Somebody spent like, it was like $300 and bought a get out of jail free card to streak at one of our games. And it still hasn't happened, but somebody out there owns a card and they're allowed to come streak at one of our games and we're not allowed to put them in jail but they're allowed to do it and they can pull it out and be like i bought this on indiegogo six years ago i still got it um That's and it worked and, and it worked like that was the first time i was like all right i know that like i know that i know this is a cool idea as a sports fan i know this is interesting i know that my you know everyone that we've talked to and asked about it aside from tony Parrish, thinks it's cool at least from an end consumer standpoint but i don't know if it's really going to stick and that was the first like all right we got something Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of, either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com 
and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then, so then in this case, you know, I know that there was um, it's, it was a little bumpy, no, especially when it came to the capital raising side of things, uh, and eventually, Lightspeed, you know, ends up calling you back and and things, you know, like uh, got a little bit more serious. So what happened there? Yeah, well, I mean, so so we so we had the we did the Indiegogo. We had our first season, which was in Salt Lake, um, as a team in the IFL, and uh, went through a myriad of you know, we had to build an app, and we had to actually staff a team in, in the city that none of us ever even lived in or even anywhere near. We had to get a front office, we had to get a venue and coachings and players and all this stuff. Um, and so we cobbled it all together, uh, fairly inexperienced-wise. And I look back on it, it must have just been total amateur hour compared to, you know, now we've done a full few full seasons of our own league, and I think we've got our legs under us. But back then, God, we must have been so sloppy. But it was so much fun. I mean, you know, we basically had to rent an Airbnb, and we would all fly out there, and we'd just take turns constantly flying back and forth from Salt Lake to L.A., um, and it was like almost living in a frat house again. I, I mean, I was literally going door to door. Like I go to Jimmy John's and like in, in Salt Lake and I'd put like a thing up like, these are our mini calendars. Can you please put them in your store? So fans know we exist and blah, blah. And we finally had our first game and it sold out like the very first game where I remember sitting there and looking out over the parking lot, like an hour before the game. And there was like a line of cars. I remember being like, what, what is this? Why are all these cars here? And then it dawned on me like, oh my God, they're, they're here to see us. Like they're here to see our game. And uh, we sold out, had a bunch of fans. We ended up having a pretty great season. Um, the team did okay. We, our defense sucked and our kickers sucked, but the fans did a great job. They called awesome plays. They recruited great players. They recruited our quarterback, who ended up being the offense, the rookie of the year in the league, and ended up going on to be a MVP, I think, later on with another team. Uh, we scored a ton of touchdowns. We scored the most two-point conversions, the most touchdowns. It was great. Um, but there were a bunch of challenges we saw with playing within that league where there was so much more we wanted to do that we thought we could expand and control. And the, the, the cost model of all playing, and we, we had to travel. Every week we'd have to travel to Spokane and to um, you know, Sioux Falls and all these other cities that just like operationally it wasn't the most efficient business. Certainly not for what we wanted to do. But we were seeing great scale digitally. So most teams in that league then were averaging you know, one to 2,000 views per game. We were averaging 100,000. And we're like, okay, this is a thing, right? Like we're, a different, we're at a different level. And the people who were watching they weren't just local Salt Lake people. This was a digital audience globally that was like, I'm interested because of the play. I don't care where the team is. I'm interested because of the play calling. So after that season, we went out and thought, all right, this is going to be great. We're going to go raise a round of money and uh, we're going to go start our own league. And it ended up being a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. And uh, we putzed around for God, felt like probably two years. Of, we did a rights deal with Twitch and uh, almost in with Facebook and I'm getting out of that, doing it with Twitch. we set up indiegogo launched this idea of icos with us like there's like new york times articles about it and then we raised five million bucks in like a week and it sat in escrow and then indiegogo decided they didn't want to touch crypto and they refunded everyone's money and we didn't get any of that capital it was just it was like a series of hits and misses we had another round like deal done sign like not signed but handshakes handshakes done term sheet ready to go and another spring league had started called the aaf and they totally flopped and ran out of money and went out of business and our investors got cold freaks. They didn't want to you know, go to their LPs and say, hey, remember that league that just collapsed that everyone talked about? We're going to go find a new one. And so just all these things like we couldn't control fell out of place. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And honestly, I think we all felt like that was like kind of the death blow, right? Like we just, we tried, we've been trying for two years. We couldn't raise the money. It was over. Um, and the last venture fund that had turned us down, right? Like literally the day that like everyone got sent home to the pandemic was like our, was like the uh, the partner call day. Um uh, was Lightspeed. 
And a couple months later, you know, we'd gotten some of the PPP loans. Uh, we'd you know barely paying the bills, keep our small staff still on. And we told everyone like, look, I think this is going to be we're going to be done soon. And you know, good luck trying to find another job. It's you know, obviously a brutal time, but we're we're out of money. And Lightspeed called and said, hey, look, we don't think we can fund your full round, but could you do a smaller one and do this on a smaller scale? in a bubble. And what really happened was the NBA had announced they were going to play in their bubble. They did in Orlando. And we've been out for two years selling this idea of like, no, no, trust us. We used to call it League in a Box. The whole league in one place, it's way more scalable. And you focus on the digital fans and the, the viewers and the interactivity. Don't worry about fans and seats. And that just was just, it was a really foreign idea. And then all of a sudden the NBA is doing it. And it was like, oh, actually, it actually makes sense. And in fact, in the state that the world was in then, it made way more sense than a live event that you're trying to sell tickets and hot dogs and beer. Uh, and so they came back and said, can you do it? And of course, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We'll figure it out. Like, we'll try it. Uh, and so we we launched our first season. We closed our, our seed round in the height of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. Uh, and we launched our first season in the spring of 2021. That's amazing. So I guess uh, for the people that are listening to get it, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So that was a I'm not going to count this for the Screaming Eagles. We did a couple million dollar friends and family round. Um, we did a $10 million seed round led by Lightspeed. Correlation, Talus. We had a strategic uh, investment from Verizon's uh, venture arm in there as well, um, and then a handful of kind of you know big name angels. Dave Finocchio founded Bleacher Report, um, uh, a host of guys from uh, other sports leagues and big tech companies. Um, Alexis Ohanian, Serena Williams' husband, who founded Reddit as an investor. Uh, that was a ten million dollars seed round, and then we played our first season. And uh, I won't give it away just yet, but the season went pretty awesome. And coming out of the back of that, uh, we were able to raise, you know, two years ago, a uh, $40 million Series A round, which included all of our prior investors uh, coming back in, as well as a host of new investors, particularly big funds on the Web3 side. As I mentioned, we kind of had this initial lean into an ICO, and then we ended up rolling out an NFT project and acquiring a, a Web3 company last year. Um, so Animoca, Delphi, Gemini uh, all came in and led uh, the last round. So uh, it's about it's 50 million, 50 million and change in venture capital rates so far. So what would you say happened on that first season that, uh, you know, opened things up for you guys in such a nice way? What happened? Yeah. So I think, so the, the season we did in Salt Lake, um, we saw very good engagement metrics and with a little bit of scale, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough scale to be like, this is a business, right? hundred thousand viewers is nice. A few thousand fans of the stadium is nice, but it just, the, the size of it wasn't that big, but it was good enough data that, once the market came to us, it was good enough for Lightspeed and Correlation to say, all right, we'll place a little bet on you guys and see how it goes. After our first, and we went to our first season, we had really clearly defined KPIs of them to say, look, we're going to spend every, we, we didn't raise as much money as we wanted. We wanted to raise 15, we only raised 10. We're going to spend every dollar we have. Like, there's no reason for us to end this season with money in the bank. This is very much a seasonal sport. Let's just shoot every bullet that we have. This is our first season of, of fan control football in 2021. Let's shoot every bullet we have. And if we hit these KPIs, then we're ready to go for the next season. And we had really clearly defined KPIs on, on reach, sort of viewership, acquisition, so who was going to install our, our app, and then the percentage of those people that were going to come back, re-engagement, retention. We weren't really focused on revenue first season. We figured if we could build a really great audience, those things would come. Uh, and so we did. So we, we had, again, I, like honestly, I, at the end of the season, we went back through all the numbers. We were obviously checking them every week with everyone, but we went back at the end. It's amazing. Like We had... We put pretty, I mean, you know, when you're selling your business to raise money, you tend to put pretty lofty goals. You're not, you're not usually selling what you, you're selling what you're hoping you can get to, not necessarily the low end of it, right? Uh, and amazingly, we hit almost exactly the numbers uh, across the board, which is pretty awesome. 
So uh, we averaged, you know, close to, uh, I think it was like six or 700,000 live views per game day. We had a couple hundred thousand installs. We had millions of play calls. We had a very high engagement and retention rate. It's like, I forget this first season numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like 85% of people who registered actually voted. And then like 78% of people who voted once came back and voted multiple times. Um, so it was like, it was really sticky. And we, we got lucky, right? That time in the world, there wasn't a lot of other sports on. We kind of captured a, like a moment, got a lot of buzz. We had some celebrity players who showed up in the middle of the season, the Johnny Manziels and Josh Gordons, and brought on these slew of celebrity owners, which helped amplify our reach. And we didn't have to spend that much money on marketing. So we came out of the back of it and said, look, now we're starting to get some scale. It isn't massive scale, but some scale of audience. The engagement retention numbers are holding. In fact, they're even improving from our, our time in Salt Lake. And we've got this pretty clear path to how we can continue to grow that by adding more teams, adding more owners, and, and doing wider distribution. And so that's, I think, really the KPIs that led us to be able to raise uh, the Series A. Now, the Series A was also saying, okay, now you're going to start raising more money. you got to start making more money. Um, so when we went into our second season, we expanded, went from four teams to eight teams. We brought in a slew of new owners. As I mentioned, we launched our own NFT project um, uh, with both collectibles and utilities. We started allowing for in-app purchases. And an interesting thing happened, which is we got through our second season, and we more than doubled our viewership, and we quadrupled our revenue. Um, which was great. Uh, and interestingly, the revenue is really split. So our business to start, we kind of, you know, there's, there's traditional, traditional sports leagues make almost all their money on the upper part of the funnel, right? Media rights and sponsorship, the, the mass reach that they can generate is how they make most of their money. And then they make some money, especially sports like baseball have a lot of games on the lower part of fans making live event purchases, right? Where it's merch and concessions and ticketing and parking, blah, blah. We never really were going to focus on those those parts. Instead, we thought about it more like we have the upper funnel monetization of a sports league, rights and sponsorships, and the lower funnel monetization of a video game. So it's free to play our game. It's free for anyone to come in. But you, the super fans, the diehard fans, the ones who really want to boost themselves or buy unique gear or collectible moments, make in-app purchases or make digital purchases, whether that's Web3 or Web2. We support both. Um, and what was really interesting after our, our second season, it was almost exactly split. Almost half of our revenue came from the millions of fans who watch the games every week. It was like 2.1 million views per week. And then half the money came from just the 5,000 craziest, most diehard fans who were spending at a really high ARPU per fan and obviously had a super high engagement retention rate. So we actually saw both. We're making money at the top of the funnel and at the bottom of the funnel from the diehards. Um, and that led us to be like, okay, now how do we expand this so that we're not just single-threaded on football? And that's you know, where we are now as we're starting to expand other sports. So as we're talking here about vision, because vision is a really big one for investors too, no? to uh, really raise money. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world grant where the vision is fully realized. What does that look like? We're known as fan-controlled football. I probably have a shirt on. It's got a logo. That's the name of the, the league. The actual business <clears throat> has always been called fan-controlled sports. The idea has always been that we believe this works across sports. So the same way that you have NBA 2K and PGA 2K and video games that work across sports, the same way that you can flip open your FanDuel or your DraftKings app and you can bet across sports. We've always assumed, we've always believed that's where it was headed. We just started with football. So for me, I think, and this is also the good news and bad news of our business. In season, viewership, acquisition, engagement, retention, monetization, numbers are awesome. Out of season, they kind of suck, right? Because there isn't that much, like we built this whole thing around a video game. Imagine if you, if you downloaded Madden or paid to buy this game, video game Madden, and then as soon as the NFL season ended, you couldn't play the games anymore. You probably wouldn't play very much. Right? There's not a lot to do when there aren't games going on. So that's been our, our challenge. So I think the vision 
that we're really executing on right now. And quite literally, our first big one of these is next week at NASCAR, the uh, NASCAR uh, season championship in Phoenix is fan controlled sports. So where the same mechanics that we've seen work really well with fan controlled football, where we make it interactive, the fans have a real voice, they have a say, there's leaderboards, they get to climb, they get to win perks and powers for their performance in the game. How do we take that and then utilize, implement that across sport? Um, and so again, we're starting with NASCAR. We've got plans to do it in golf. We've already announced some plans around basketball uh, and even some international sports. And I think the the vision is a year a year round fan controlled sports experience. So think of it a little bit like a DraftKings or FanDuel, right? When not that it's sports betting, although we can monetize that way, but we're not going to be a regulated betting shop. That's not our job. We're partners to that. Um, but think about those apps. Their biggest money maker of the year is football, right? They make the most money on the NFL and college football season. The Super Bowl, I'm pretty sure, is their number one day of, of betting. But when the Super Bowl ends, they don't just say, hey, see you next September. It's immediately March Madness and the Masters and NBA playoffs and the Kentucky Derby and the U.S. Open. There's a slew of things for you to continue doing. As a fan, you can always be engaging and participating. So you asked me about the vision. My end view is every day I wake up, there's some cool new shit that I get to control. This week, there's a NASCAR race. Next week, there's a golf tournament. Oh, football season's two weeks away. I got to start setting my draft picks, right? All these things to keep you actively involved and engaged, where we're kind of 24-7, if you will, uh, opportunity for fans to be in control and really participating. So as we're talking here about the future, I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. You know, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe 2014 when you were thinking about venturing out and becoming an entrepreneur, you know, with your first business back then. But let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger grant and being able to give that younger grant one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, man. That's a good one. Uh, you know what I would tell myself then? Um, find, make sure you have awesome co-founders and that you have a shared vision and that you like each other because you're going to spend a whole lot of time together and you're going to have to make a lot of decisions together. Um, I, I've started some other businesses in my past. I've, ne I've never had any where I, don't, I, I didn't like or had terrible co-founder experiences, but I've had ones where I've started it by myself. And I, being a solo founder, I don't like. like. You need someone. There's highs and lows. Honestly, every day, even at the stage of business we're at now, it's amazing how many days I'm here and then here and then I'm back here by the end of the day. And you need someone else who's in, in there with you. And I don't think, you know, you can have great staff and employees, but like, unless it's your business and your baby, it's really hard to, to, to appreciate that. And then make sure it's people that you really like, and you get along with, and you have a shared vision with, because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. I spent the last five years, I've spent as much time with my, about as much time with my co-founders as I have with my own real family. So luckily, this group of guys is great. We have gotten along amazingly well. There have been very few times that we haven't all been in the exact same mindset on, on key decisions to the business. We're almost always in lockstep. We had one honestly pop up earlier today. We had a, a sponsor who all of a sudden didn't have the budget that we thought uh, they'd be able to have for this race. And it's in a week from now. We're like, oh no, what are we going to do with it? And one of my co-founders kind of quickly thinking, quick quick thinking on his feet said, well, what if we, they, they didn't have the budget this year, but what if we just locked them in now to a multi-year deal? and you know, buy two, get one free, and they get the first one free, and they pay us in January. We're like, oh, yes. Like, the other rest were like, yes, that's the idea. Awesome. And we we're all like immediately in line with it. Uh, and so I, I think it's that sort of thing where you can have really great co-founders you can trust and lean on um, and have good relationships with. Uh, that would probably be the most important thing, I think, for starting a business. Because honestly, every business that I've ever been a part of, you can have great ideas, and you can, have an, you can even build an awesome product. 
and you can, or you can have a great sales team or whatever, but it's how well the people actually execute that almost always makes the difference. Hey, you can get unlucky. You can be in a bad market at the wrong time sometimes, but most of the time, the startups that turn into successful businesses because they had really great people who really executed well, and that starts with the founders. I love it. So Grant, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, any which way you want. You can hit me up at uh, grant at franchise, F-A-N-C-H-I dot S-E. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. If you're going to be in Phoenix at the race, come wave to us in the, on Pit Row. Um, you know, I think for something we, we didn't totally dive in on, but I think it's an interesting thing for what I think is your network of listeners um, is that while we have raised a lot of money on a venture capital side and, you know, imagine valuations and uh, investment sizes and stuff is maybe a little prohibiting to individuals. Um, one of the things that, that we're really focused on in this sort of grander vision is how do we democratize not only sports engagement, but ownership um, uh, for the fans? You know, right now, owning a, a major professional sports team is reserved for a very small percentage of people. You have to be a multi-hundred millionaire or billionaire with really great access to even be able to get a part of, a, of an NBA, MLB, NFL team. Uh, we think that at the valuations of our teams, the interest, the ability for us to be more digitally minded so we can be outside of different, you know, we're not restricted by geos, uh, but creates a really neat opportunity. So we're doing it right now on the football side. We have a host of individuals who have come in and become part owners of our teams. We'll be doing it with racing. We'll be doing it with golf in the near future. We haven't really announced that yet, so keep that between us. Um, but I think there's a lot of really cool opportunity for folks to be involved uh, in the business in a meaningful way without having to be a billionaire. Uh, and it's a really, I can tell you, owning and running your own football team is really effing awesome. It's a ton of fun. Uh, and doing it with the fans is incredible. And I'm not even a NASCAR or car racing guy, but it seems, I'm pretty excited. Like, it seems like it's going to be pretty great. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. Well, hey, Grant, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.